Amen. Thank you, Annie. Um, I have sensed from the beginning that this was God's project, and so I'm just going to continue to go on that (laughs) as I've uh, been through the past few days, which have been pretty tough. Um, But thank you to those of you who are praying for me. Um, I'm sure that many of you are coming to Bible study today from stressful, busy days. Um, And maybe some of you are coming from boring, isolated days. But either way, you um, have had longings. We all have longings and needs and wants during the day. Um, We have them constantly. Most of them are self-centered. Some of them are not. But... um, Some of them are little things, like just things that we want to get done or just being comfortable. I want to be warm. I want to be um, not hungry. Um, And But some of them are bigger. Some of them are bigger longings, like I want to be healed from cancer or I want to find a spouse or I have dreams for my career or for my children. Um, and sometimes it's hard to ask God for these things that we really long for because then we would have to hope that he would give them to us. And we would have to look at his face and wonder if he'll answer our prayers or not. And that's tough. And that hope and positive expectation is called faith. But there's more to faith than just hoping for what we long for. Like it says in Hebrews 11, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a deep-seated confidence that when we put our needs and our wants before God, that no matter what he has planned, the foundation of his goodness, power, and love are unchanged, and that they're unmoving, even though we might not understand. So that's this being certain of what we do not see. We don't see a lot of times God's power, goodness, and love. It's hard to see that sometimes. So this kind of solid, unshakable faith sometimes seems impossible. It seems unattainable. But we're going to dive into Mark 9 and um, look at where Jesus teaches the disciples and teaches us how to go about that kind of faith. We're a little over halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and we've heard a lot of Jesus' teaching and seen a lot of his miracles. We've been shown his otherworldliness with the people that have been following him. As he's defied nature, human physiology, and blown minds with his words, we've been challenged to believe that, as the Messiah, he holds the highest authority, and that he is, in fact, God. There's a subtle shift, however, at this point. Jesus has begun in the last chapter and will again for the next two chapters to introduce the idea that as Messiah, that he must suffer and die. So Messiah as authority and Messiah as someone that must suffer and die. Two polar opposite ideas. And not a popular idea with the disciples, but something that they must eventually understand and accept. 
So what better way to help them than a real-life illustration? The story that follows mirrors their struggle, and our struggle for that matter, with faith, understanding, and dependence on him. It starts out when some of them have just come down the mountain, literally and figuratively, from seeing a glimpse of the glory of God. The rest of them have been sitting in the mire of the exact opposite. They've been unable to heal a boy that was possessed with an evil spirit, and then they had to argue with the Pharisees about it. The crowd's amazement and greeting of Jesus shows that his reputation is spreading and also emphasizes his popularity and authority over the Pharisees. So next, the father of the boy speaks up and describes his son's suffering. He says, the boy is being thrown down, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, and becoming rigid. These are actually classic symptoms of tonic-clonic grand mal seizures that are seen in epilepsy. And my medical mind wanted to understand this better. Was it actually demon possession, or was it seizures? The same story in other um, books of the gospel, starting with Matthew. Matthew says that it identifies it as seizures in one verse, but then says that Jesus rebuked the demon. In Mark, we have lots of description of the condition, but then again, Jesus heals him by commanding the spirit to come out. Luke, who is a physician, interestingly enough, also describes it as a spirit, seizing the boy and throwing him into convulsions. So after reading the commentaries and going down that road for a while, my conclusion was that it didn't really matter. There's probably, in reality, a lot of overlap between the spiritual and the the physical disease realm as they're both a result of the fall and the brokenness of this world. Either way, Jesus could have fixed the boy's brain or commanded a demon. So it's not really important. And either way, it needed much prayer and faith. And this, by the way, is what Jesus wanted to focus on, so this is what we're going to focus on. The disciples were given authority to cast out demons by Jesus, and they actually had done it before, So why couldn't they do it this time? As soon as they got Jesus alone, it was the first thing that they asked him. In verse 29, we see, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The hard work of persevering prayer. The kind of prayer that would have reminded them of their dependence on God and shift the focus from their potential success of helping the boy who was possessed to... God's strength and power. And as we'll see later in the chapter, they, the disciples seem to be focused on their own glory. So now we can understand a little better Jesus' groaning cry in verse 19. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He'd also just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration that we just heard about, where he had to deal with his disciples just not getting it. The commentators disagree about whether the you in how long am I to bear with you um, refers to the disciples along with the crowd, the scribes, and the boy's father. Jesus was definitely not accusing the disciples of doing something wrong. He seemed to be saying it was just a limitation or a misplaced dependence. 
Edwards points out in his commentary that the phrase unbelieving generation is used five other times in Mark, but never in reference to the disciples. But their unbelief is definitely on display in this chapter. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be in that crowd when Jesus said that, but I'm glad that scripture shares with us his human discouragement and frustration. It gives us permission to lament the hard stuff. But these emotions of his don't seem to get in the way of his loving actions. I love the way he so patiently turns it around and says, bring the boy to me, and then shows such compassion by asking, how long has this been happening to him? So Jesus' attention now is on the Father. If he's going to heal this boy, he wants this man's focus and dependence to be in the right place. Like the disciples' focus was not. The Father describes how long they've been dealing with this and how awful it's been. This poor man has been through so much, watching his son suffer. You can hear in his words all the waiting, all the struggle, all the agonizing. Any of you that have had a sick child for any period of time know this struggle. It's awful to see your kids suffer. Those of us who've had to deal with long-term issues with our children can especially relate. Year after year of appointments, explaining again what the problem is, feeling helpless but doing everything you can to advocate for your child, waiting some more, trying something else only to have it not help, googling symptoms and alternative therapies, and then wondering about that future. Will he suffer like this the rest of his life? I can so relate to this. Jesus took the time to acknowledge all of this by asking that question. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do for someone who's struggling. Just acknowledge the hard stuff and sit in it with them for a bit before you say or do anything else. Just like when Jesus wept with Mary and Martha before raising Lazarus from the dead. Grieving is healthy, and an acknowledgement like that can validate someone's suffering and actually help them with their burden. This also helped the Father's focus to turn to Jesus through relationship. The Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He doesn't know for sure if Jesus can help, but he's heard things, and this is his last best hope. He's seen a bit of Jesus' compassion already, and so he appeals to that. His hope is rooted in the little he knows of Jesus. Jesus seems to be surprised and says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. This is not a blanket statement giving us magic powers if we can muster up enough faith. This is a reminder once again that faith and dependence on God are what he wants before he acts. He wants relationship with us. He wants connection. He wants dependence. He knows it's our greatest need. The greatest thing he can give us is himself, even though we ask for so many other things and we want so many other things. So the object of our faith is what is important, not the amount or the quality of of our faith. So, for example, if you saw an incredibly skilled surgeon on the street and didn't know him from Adam, but had to agree right then and there for him to do your surgery, the outcome of your surgery would not depend on your faith in him. It wouldn't matter if you knew or not that he went to a top medical school, trained with renowned surgeons, and had a 100% success rate. If you agreed to do it with all the faith in the world, or almost none at all, either way, the surgeon would do a great job. 
Either way, he would be a really good choice. But the more we know of the surgeon, the stronger our faith is, and the more peace we have about the outcome. In the same way, it helps our faith to know the fact of God's goodness, love, and power. But the strength of our faith is not important to the outcome. He loves our faith, though, but he's not dependent on it. We also have to know that God is actually the provider or the source of our faith, as the father of the boy in this story seems to understand. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the most beautifully ironic and relatable statements in the Bible. At first it seems contradictory, like he was confused. But the more we put ourselves in in his shoes, the more it makes sense. You can be at both places at the same time. He's saying something like, I think I believe, I want to believe, I think you are amazing, and I trust you based on our interactions and what I've heard. I want this so badly, I'm so desperate, I feel so strongly that it must be belief. But I know my faith is weak, and I know it's not near what it should be. And I know you are strong, and I know I even need help with this simple thing that you're asking of me. So please help me, help me even to believe. It's exactly what Jesus was looking for. Not unwavering confidence with no doubts, but a dumpster fire of emotions that are poured at his feet and eyes that pleadingly ask and a soul that falls helplessly into his arms. It's not only okay, but it's needed to put that messiness of longing and doubt right there on the table before him and just offer him your gaze and your need. That's actually what faith looks like, and it's not pretty. It's where he meets us, though, and it's where he gives us himself. Again, it's not the amount of faith that's important, but it's what that faith is resting on. Is it resting on shifting sand, or is it resting on a rock? At this point in the story, Jesus, with all his compassion and goodness and power, speaks a few words and commands the demon to leave the boy and never come back. The, the spirit knew who he was and obeyed, but not before crying out and convulsing the boy one last time. The boy looked like he was dead and probably felt like it too. The father's heart must have stopped. But Jesus took the boy by the hand and helped him up. And notice the language here in verse 27. And he arose. Do you see the illustration he's giving the disciples right before he tells them of his coming death? I wonder if they caught it. I wonder if they were encouraged by it. They didn't have the benefit of hindsight like we do. But it was a picture of suffering, a death of sorts. And then authority over evil and brokenness and a rising back to life, but a healed life, freed from slavery to the curse, along with the assurance that the demon would never be allowed to bother him again. This is a picture of what Jesus would soon accomplish and a picture of salvation for us. We too have a death of sorts when we, by faith, humble ourselves, confess our sins, and admit our need for a Savior. And when we do, Jesus' authority over sin and death takes over in our lives, and we're no longer slaves to it. We're a new risen creation. 
And this story will also repeat itself when we physically die and finally are forever free from brokenness and sin. So before we move on to the next section, I wanted to share with you how this story has struck a chord with me. Many of you know that we have a son that we adopted from Ukraine. He's now 14, but he was one and a half years old when we brought him home into our family. In the years since then, we've learned a lot about the effects of early childhood trauma on the human brain. Former communist countries are known for their orphanages that are eerily silent because babies learn that crying for their needs doesn't bring help. The caretakers are taught not to hold or give attention to the babies because that will make them cry more. The developing brain needs affirmation of worth and safety through provision of basic needs. And if it doesn't get that, there are long-lasting effects that leave a child in a state of constant anxiety and stress. This can look like hair-trigger reactions, anger, and aggression. Our son actually just recently had an EEG, a medical test that showed the patterns of the brain waves, and it confirmed these effects on trauma, that these effects are often from trauma. It was really fascinating. I'm sure that many of you know children from hard backgrounds that struggle with behavior issues. And not to be dramatic, but at times it feels like he's being controlled by an evil spirit like he's being held captive by his past. I described earlier a bit of what it's like for me as a parent. I've had so many moments of crying out for help as I struggle not to take it personally, but to respond to my child's root needs of safety and relationship as opposed to his outward behavior. We have tried so many things. My faith that God can and will help constantly wavers. I try not to put my hope in the different therapies and medications, but my hope tends to want to rest on something that I can see, something that is more under my control. But ironically, you know what helps? Seeing and admitting that my faith does waver and constantly asking even for faith. The commentator Strauss says, when our faith wavers, it's not because we're not striving hard enough to succeed are not confident enough in our own abilities, it's because we've gotten our eyes off Jesus. Jesus' words here echo those of Paul. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We can accomplish anything when we acknowledge that we can accomplish nothing on our own. Mustard seed faith is a little bit of faith in a very big God. That's all from Strauss. So don't get discouraged when you get discouraged. In whatever journey you're on, in whatever you're having to plod through right now, and we've all had to do a lot of plodding in the past year and persevering. So make this cry of, I believe, help my unbelief, part of your daily or hourly prayers, and let it remind you to turn your eyes to Jesus. The more we demonstrate, the more we pray, we demonstrate how much we really believe that we have to be dependent on God. If we don't pray much, it seems like we're saying we don't need to be dependent on God. So going back to the passage, we're at verse 33, where Jesus pointedly asked the disciples, 
what they were talking about on the way to Capernaum, knowing full well that they were arguing about who was the greatest among them. I'm sure it's a bit embarrassing for them when he asked this, but if I were Jesus, I would have just thrown out my hands and said, are you kidding me, really? (laughs) But once again, he patiently perseveres with teaching them and says, if anyone would be the first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. First, a few words in defense of the disciples. To our Western ears, discussing who is the greatest is very cringeworthy. But in an honor-shame culture of this time period, Strauss writes, boasting was considered necessary to confirm one's social status in the community. And another commentator, Edwards, writes, rabbinic writings of Judaism frequently comment on seating order in paradise and argue that the just would sit nearer to God than even the angels. An earthly order of seating at worship and meals were seen as preparation for the eternal order to come. So the disciples were on this journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, and it was raising their kind of messianic hopes that the kingdom would surely break forth there. Jesus would surely take some kind of throne in Jerusalem. They were not only not getting it, but were in denial of Jesus' predictions, of his predictions of death and suffering. He knew they needed more examples. So he pulled a child into his arms, probably or possibly one of Peter's children, because they could have been in his home in Capernaum. And he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He was speaking in Aramaic, and in that language, the word for child is the same as servant, just like it is in French, the word garçon. In our culture, we generally think of children as vulnerable and gentle, but holding a lot of value. Children in that culture and time period, though, were seen as insignificant and having no social status. So welcoming a child meant breaking social norms and putting your own social status at risk of being lowered. He was calling on the disciples and his people as a whole to serve the servants, to host and show kindness to the lowest of the low. He was calling them and us to serve and lead the way he was about to do on the cross. By dying to ourselves and our own needs and jumping in the mud, as Carrie talked about last time. This past year, I've heard from so many moms and teachers about the struggles of school in the pandemic. For many of us, God is calling us to lovingly and patiently persevere in serving in the mud with our kids, being Jesus for them, without whining about our own needs. In doing so, Jesus said that somehow we're actually welcoming and serving God himself. Edwards writes, The humblest act of kindness sets off a chain reaction that shakes heaven itself. This also applies in our approach to people around us that we might disagree with. Insignificance equals significance. Weak equals strong. Last equals first. Servant equals great. This is how we need to do every aspect of life. We need to examine every area of our day and make sure that our approach is such. Do you see the repeating theme here? 
Do you see how this is not only the way into Christianity, where we see our sin, repent, and believe, but it's also the way through all of the Christian life. We need to be okay with weakness, admit it, pray for help, serve, die to self, fail, repent, pray again for help, give, trust without understanding, worship blind, fail, repent, pray for faith, and repeat. So may God give us more and more grace and faith to be like Jesus in his willingness to be a weak, needy, insignificant, and loving servant. And may he give us grace to ask for faith in our struggles and have eyes to see our Savior at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are strong, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you are good. We pray that you would give us faith. We pray that you would help us to trust in you, to lean on you, to depend on you, and to keep looking back to you. Lord, help us to be good at seeing our need, good at repenting of not seeing our need. Lord, help us to glorify you well in all these things. And we pray that you would bless our time of discussion now. And we thank you so much for your word and for Jesus. In his name, amen.